The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Martin Bork. He is a renowned environmental expert and since 2000 has served as executive director of the Ecology Center based in Berkeley, California. The Ecology Center is a community-based nonprofit organization that was incorporated on Earth Day in 1970. It envisions and works towards a world where human activity nurtures the ecosystems that we all depend on, a world of sustainable cities, empowered, resilient communities, zero waste and zero toxics, equal access to healthy food, sustainable resource use, and a safe and stable climate. Mr. Bork's leadership has led the Ecology Center to be one of the nation's first and longest-running curbside recycling programs. He pioneers zero-waste policy solutions at the local level that have national and international implications. Mr. Bork is engaged with international partners fighting plastic pollution around the globe. He pioneered GPS tracking of scrap plastic exports, spearheaded the nation's first plastic foodware reduction ordinance, and has been featured in numerous films and documentaries, including Bag It, The Story of Plastic, and the Netflix series Broken, Recycling Sham. His previous experience includes working as the Sustainable Agriculture Program Director for Food First, where he helped build the international organic farming movement throughout the U.S., Caribbean, Latin America, and Southeast Asia. He also co-founded Californians for Pesticide Reform to reduce the worst pesticides in California through public education and regulatory reform. He holds a Master of Arts in Latin American Studies and Environmental Policy from UC Berkeley and a BA in Evolution, Ecology, and Behavior from UC San Diego. I invited him here to tell us more about the Ecology Center's work with a focus on the myths of plastic recycling and the true fate of plastic waste. Welcome, Mr. Bork. Uh, It's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me on the show. You have done such tremendous work in the plastics area, and I first saw you in the film, The Story of Plastic, and I think what that film did was it brought forth the enormity of the problem of plastic waste. And I believe you had said that what we have is really a plastic packaging crisis, more so than just a plastic recycling crisis. It has to do with the packaging itself. Explain that. Well, we've been hearing from the plastics industry that all plastic is recyclable now for about 50 years. They've spent a lot of money trying to convince everybody that all plastic is recyclable and especially that their plastic packaging is recyclable. And this is really critical for many brands to convince their consumer base that they're environmentally sound companies and to make them feel good about their products. And in fact, most of the plastic packaging out there in the planet is not recyclable. And even that that might be recyclable, the vast majority of that is not getting recycled. And what that means in the U.S. is maybe that hopefully it's getting to landfills, but 
it's exported, it's ending up oftentimes in the environment. Right. And the problem with the plastic packaging is that it's oftentimes multi-layered, which makes it impossible to recycle. Is that correct? Well, there's just so many different kinds. So, and each of them, you know, has its own unique properties, making it very difficult to do anything consistent with. So, multi-layering is a huge problem. The shape and design of the packaging becomes a problem in recycling. Really, we can only consistently recycle number one narrow neck PET bottles. These would be like water bottles and soda bottles. And narrow neck number two bottles and jugs. These would be like shampoo bottles and detergent jugs. Basically, everything else doesn't have a way to get collected and sorted or doesn't have a market that can actually turn that packaging back into feedstock for another future product. What is it about the narrow neck that makes it different from others? Yeah, so when they formulate the plastic, what you see on those chasing arrows, which actually have nothing to do with their recyclability, that was a a marketing scheme that the plastics industry came up to try and convince people that it was all recyclable. They co-opted the recycling symbol and put their numbers inside it. The number refers to the plastic resin type. You know, this is a oil or gas distillate product in different formulations. And so it's that resin type can be made into a number of different products depending on what additives they add to it. And the additives might change the melting temperature or how stretchy it is or how liquid it gets when it's in a mold. So when we say narrow neck, what we're talking about is bottles and jugs where the opening at the top is smaller than the base. And to achieve that kind of shape has certain consistent properties in terms of the additives that they put in it. And if you have that kind of consistency of what the additives are, then it can be made back into bottles and jugs or into other kinds of products. When you start adding in all the other things that that resin, say a number one or a number two, might be made into, there's just so many variations that it becomes hard to get a consistent feedstock for remanufacturing on the tail end. Hmm. You know, one thing that became very clear to me in the story of plastic is that we really need to stop plastic production at the tap. And it's largely because plastics, A, can't be recycled, as you've explained largely, and B, it comes from a fossil fuel base. How many people do you think understand or recognize the fossil fuel connection to plastic? Well, I think the plastics industry wants to create as big a a psychological barrier between the fossil fuel industry and the package that you're holding in in your hand. They don't want you to think that what you're holding in your hand is the result of the oil extraction and the pipelines and the refineries and the petrochemical industry and the pelletizing, you know, all along that manufacturing chain and extraction and transport manufacturing chain, there are problems, environmental impacts and community impacts, typically impacting people of color and low-income people, people with the least voice about what happens around them and who bear the disproportionate burdens of the manufacturing and extraction all along that petrochemical line. 
And while the plastic packaging has tremendous benefits for packagers and brands and distribution chains and shelf life and food safety, and, you know, there's a lot of benefits that it provides. It also carries a toxic footprint that's pretty horrific and a really dramatic climate impact. So even before we get to disposal of that packaging, we have to take into account all of the other negative impacts that the packaging has. And then there isn't really a good end of life for any of it. For a very small percentage, uh, we can make those plastic bottles back into fleece for hoodies or, or sweatshirts or into carpet or in some small cases back into bottles. But for the most part, those bottles are not getting recycled. According to the Break Free from Plastic Movement's global audit of brands and products along shorelines, when they do shoreline cleanups around the globe, they've aggregated all the data, and the top polluting products and brands are all beverage containers. You know, they're bottles. It's those very same plastic bottles that could potentially be recycled but are not getting recycled and are ending up on shorelines across the globe with tremendous negative impacts. As they break down, they can become sort of sponges for toxic chemicals. Persistent organic pollutants are attracted to the microplastics that those degrade down into. And then those make their way back up the food chain, getting into all kinds of certainly seafood, but uh, moving right up the food chain, they're now finding it in our drinking water, in the air, land, sea, and air. So Once it's released into the environment, it's really hard to get any kind of containment on. So you're absolutely right. The solution is not to try and recycle our way out of this problem, but to produce less of the plastic packaging to begin with. And I think there's so much greenwash out there. And you have been working on a Senate bill that is titled Truth in Labeling for Recycling Materials Law. Can you tell us where that stands and what that law would include? Yeah, so California did pass a truth in labeling, recycling law here in California. A couple of other states have followed suit, and we're hoping that by requiring manufacturers to be honest and truthful about the use of that recycling symbol and other recycling messaging that they put on their packaging, that at least consumers won't get the wrong idea that all plastics are recyclable. So the law here in California requires proof that the packaging product that's being labeled as recyclable actually does get recycled to a significant degree and has real markets for it as recycled scrap. So really that would only potentially include number one and number two narrow neck bottles like we discussed. And the chasing arrows on all other plastic packaging will need to go away. So that's a big win. It begins to undo the false narrative that the plastic industry has been promoting for decades. But we need to go much further than that in restricting what kinds of plastics are included in curbside recycling programs. Oftentimes, Cities and in their efforts to be excellent recyclers want to add all plastics to the recycling program, including maybe plastic bags or other kinds of pouches, even multi-layered materials like you were talking about, like some juice packs or 
cartons to the recycling program, and, and those recycling providers may not actually be able to recycle any of that stuff. So it ends up adding costs to the recycling program, then has to be sorted out and then landfilled, which you know sort of undermines the customer's trust in the recycling program. So right. that's the next step. It undermines our good intentions, I think. And so I really appreciate this effort to tell the truth about these products. I'm also interested in plastic foodware. You spearheaded the nation's first plastic foodware reduction ordinance. Tell me what that looks like. Yeah, so lots of cities around, coastal cities in particular, around the Bay Area and California, other states, had been trying to reduce plastic foodware Everything from straws and food utensils, plates, the clamshell, food containers, deli tubs and lids. It turns out that about two-thirds of the street litter in the Bay Area is single-use disposable foodware. And it's the stuff that most quickly gets into storm drains and then washes into our creeks, our rivers, our marine environment. And so this was an area that we really wanted to focus on, not just pushing out of plastic and into another regrettable substitution, you know, like just saying, okay, we're going to switch from plastic to biodegradable, compostable plastics or into paper foodware. But we really wanted to focus on reducing foodware overall. And this was a similar strategy that we had used around carry-out bags. So the goal was to ban the worst, and require reusable foodware for on-site dining. I know we've all had the experience of sitting down to a meal in a restaurant and then looking down and what used to be your meal is now just a pile of garbage, (laughs) a large pile in some cases. So, you know, getting away from all the disposable foodware, especially for on-site dining where it's easy to use reusable plates, cups, utensils, etc. Right. So another part of the ordinance is a charge on disposable cups. So the idea is that you would have reusable cups, both for hot and cold beverages, for on-site dining. But it's only been 20 years that we've expected everywhere in our lives to be able to get a hot cup of tea or coffee or a cold beverage and carry it away with us. And we really wanted to make that the cost of that visible as cups are a huge part of disposable foodware and and the litter from disposable foodware. So working off of the experience we had with the single-use bag reduction strategies that we piloted initially in Berkeley and then became the law in Alameda County and eventually became law in the state of California, we eliminated the plastic options and then charged for disposable compostable carryout cups. And so the goal there is to have a 25-cent charge for each cup that's visible to the customer so that you know this cup actually has a value and it costs the restaurant to provide it to you. And then it also costs in terms, you know, has a cost in terms of its disposal. Mm. You know, you are coming from a place in the country that is really seen as progressive when it comes to the environmental movement. And you're so lucky to be there. So many of our listeners, however, are not based in what I would call a progressive community. And we face a lot of opposition anytime we want to try to ban any kind of plastic. In fact, some states and communities have bans on plastic bans. And I think 
I have a sense of who's fighting against us. I mean, honestly, the the restaurant industry often comes out in opposition to these kinds of laws. What has been your experience? Who is coming out and speaking against your good efforts to reduce plastic waste? Yeah, I mean, the biggest opposition comes from the American Chemistry Council and in some cases around the food where it comes from the restaurant associations, whether they're they're local, state, or national. Some of those are really, you know, they try to pretend that they're local small businesses. Usually the ones putting in the most money are the large fast food chains, and they don't want their business as usual disrupted. But we know that in Europe, for example, there are McDonald's where you eat on regular reusable foodware. And then in the U.S., they say, oh, that's impossible. It'll be the end of the world. And of course, we find that it's not. We're really excited to see lots of other cities picking up very similar elements or all of the elements of this ordinance. That's happened in large cities across the West Coast. We have Vancouver, Los Angeles. We've had movement at the county level in counties like Marin. And, you know, then in smaller towns and cities across the nation and in in other countries. So for folks who are looking, wanting to pursue reuse policies and elimination of single-use disposable plastics, I I steer them to upstream.org, Upstream Solutions. They are doing a lot of work helping people to organize these kinds of ordinances. They were really critical in supporting the passage of our ordinance here in Berkeley. And they're just a, a really great resource for that. And also, you know, you can check out our website. We have a lot of resources about our local Berkeley ordinance going up on the website as well. Yeah, I have to concur. You've got a tremendous source of resources for people who want to get plastic out of their lives. Mr. Bork, I need to take one break because we are halfway through, and I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Martin Bork. He is a renowned environmental expert, and since 2000, he has served as executive director of the Ecology Center based in Berkeley, California. So, Mr. Bork, let's go back to something that you mentioned, and that had to do with biodegradable food waste. Is this another greenwash? Yeah, so there's a whole spectrum of things that fall into that general term of biodegradable. Everything from things labeled degradable, which is often just plastic stuck together with cornstarch. And so when it gets wet, it falls apart into smaller pieces of plastic. It doesn't actually degrade. It just kind of disappears into the environment. Everything from that to truly biodegradable, compostable plant-based things that look like and act like plastic. And so one of the big challenges right now is that there isn't a good national standard and and labeling for that. There is good third-party certification around what actually gets composted, you know, what can actually biodegrade in a composting facility or in the natural environment. BPI is the certification that we chose here in Berkeley or to make sure that things that are claiming to be compostable actually are. And that includes paper fiber products as well as the bioplastics. To note, some of the paper fiber products that look really natural have a plastic lining in them or they have 
toxic chemicals embedded in them, like the PFAS and PFOA fluorinated compounds that are used kind of like Teflon to create a grease or water barrier. So the BPI certification really helps to make sure that we know that these are safe products and that they will actually break down in, in our municipal composting program. The bioplastics, you know, on the one hand, like say you don't even have a composting program in your community, we believe that it's better to use a plant base to make those products than it is to use a petrochemical base to make those products. That said, farming and producing the corn typically that's used to make those, you know, has its own set of environmental impacts. And some people would argue that should we be taking food to make disposable foodware or think of all the environmental impacts of expanding corn and soy production in tropical forest areas or even the environmental degradation that industrial corn production produces in the U.S. So, you know, there's kind of no free lunch when it comes to disposables. Really where we want to get to is eliminating disposables to the degree that we can. Right. Now tell me, what does BPI stand for? I believe it's the Biological Packaging Institute. Okay. I'd have to Google it to get it right. That's okay. The reason why I ask that is because, unfortunately, BPI is so close to BPA. But So there could be some confusion there. Is this a national third-party certification, or is it just on the West Coast? No, I think they actually certify globally. I'm not about that, but yeah. Um, yeah, definitely nationally, and many of the truly compostable products out there have sought their certification because they really want to identify, you know, distinguish their product line from some of the more greenwashy kinds of products. Yeah, I'm a big fan of third-party certifications, so that is really good to know. And I guess people just need to look at packaging for that BPI certification label? Yeah, you, it'll typically be on cups and containers, and you know, if you're buying in bulk, it would be on the outer package of a box okay. compostable plastic All forks, right. for example. So tell me now, what is advanced recycling? I've seen that in the press as well. Well, that's a total misnomer. What it basically is, is taking plastic and putting it back through a petrochemical refinery of sorts to try and produce new plastic, ostensibly new virgin plastic pellet or feedstock to manufacture it. And what it really ends up being, in most cases, you know, that ends up being very expensive very complicated, very toxic. And in most cases, what they're doing is using this idea as a solution for plastic packaging. And in reality, what the few plants that are out there are actually doing is they break the plastic down into kind of precursor chemical, typically naphtha, which can be used for many different things. But the most common thing it gets used for is fuel. So when they say advanced recycling, what they're really talking about is burning plastic. And I say, you know, what's advanced about burning plastic? You don't need to go through all those. If you're just going to burn it, why through all the the rigmarole and put fancy names on it? It's neither advanced nor is it recycling. 
Right. And I'm assuming that any kind of airborne pollutants don't have controls. Yeah, they're going to operate within the regulatory controls that would exist for other refineries. And some states are trying to have these reclassified as some kind of renewable technology or manufacturing technology so that they don't have the environmental regulations on them that an incinerator would, when in fact, they're basically, they convert the plastic to fuel and then they burn the fuel. It's basically an incineration system. So that's something we've been fighting against at the state national level across the country is to try and prevent these reclassifications of these technologies as manufacturing as opposed to waste disposal. But they also, according to the toxic release inventory, these facilities produce a lot of toxic waste. And so they may get some usable fuel, varying grades, often very dirty fuel, but, you know, they're producing a lot, in some cases, more toxic residual than the fuel that they're manufacturing. So, you know, in many cases, it's just a big greenwashing scheme. And these technologies have been around for decades so that they're coming out and saying, oh, we've got all this brand new technology or don't stop collecting all the plastic because, you know, right around the corner is this new amazing magic technology that's going to solve all these problems. And really what they're looking at is things that have been patented for 60 or more years and have never penciled out and continue to produce toxic waste and don't solve the many problems of collection and sorting of those plastic packages. So, you know, again, rather than going through all this effort and creating more toxic waste and using more energy and time and money to try and collect and sort out all of that plastic packaging, we should be reducing plastic packaging and finding other ways to deliver goods and services to people. Absolutely. Martin, we just have a minute left, and I want to make sure I give you that short amount of time to leave our listeners with anything you want to make sure they take home from this. Well, I just say it's a big movement. Check out the Break Free from Plastic Pollution.org page. Thousands of organizations around the globe. You know, there's a tsunami of plastic waste, and the industry only wants to grow it. They project massive growth of plastic packaging as their way around reductions in our use of fossil fuels to keep their businesses alive. And, and we've got to have a, a global movement fighting back at the every level, you know, local, community, state, national, international levels to, to really push back against it. Absolutely. Well, the Ecology Center has been out in front. And one of the resources that you have online, Strategies to Get Plastic Out of Your Life, is an excellent resource. You also have a great graph of common plastics and reasons to avoid them for safety. So I will make sure that people know about not only the breakfreefromplastics.org site, but also ecologycenter.org. We've got to close, unfortunately, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Martin Bork. He is committed to sparking change within the environmental and social justice landscape to address the growing environmental existential threats to modern society. And again, since 2000, 
2000, he has led the Ecology Center, a community-based organization incorporated on Earth Day 1970, based in Berkeley, California, but working nationally and internationally. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Bork. Oh, great to be with you. Thank you.